Welcome to the Global Challenges podcast by One Young World, a global nonprofit with a mission to create the next generation of more responsible and effective leadership. I'm One Young World co-founder, Kate Robinson, and you'll hear from activists and world leaders as they delve into five of the most pressing topics that you, our community of change makers, have identified. This week's episode focuses on the topic of future economies. An estimated 44% of global wealth is owned by the richest 1% of people. We found that 49% of young leaders believe that capitalism can adequately address inequality, but not in its current form, while 37% believe a new economic system and model is needed to address this issue. On a mission to explore how economic growth can be more just is this week's host, Carlotta Chiacci. Carlotta is the one-year world coordinating ambassador, actively involved in the Finance and Business 2030 task force called FinBiz. She's passionate about channeling funds to a more sustainable and socially just future. She's a corporate banker, supporting entrepreneurial companies in renewable energy and digital infrastructure spaces. to be joined by One Young World Ambassador, Quinn Underwood. Quinn is a repeat entrepreneur, global health researcher, and author. He is a former co-founder and director of global business development for Advan, a health tech company he helped scale across Bangladesh and India in his second and third year at the University of Toronto. As a global health researcher, Quinn's work focuses on mobile health technology and social network analysis as it relates to the spread of behavior and information in a health context. He is the former founder of two technology companies and one nonprofit. Quinn currently serves as a CEO of Animal, a platform built to help individuals and organizations measure and predict psychological well-being through the use of AI. Quinn, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, definitely glad to be here. If we look at this from, you know, the health context, we're speaking at the health plenary session at One Young World in The Hague in 2018. You mentioned that 90% of global child mortality, 80% of all strokes, heart diseases, and more than 40% of cancers could be prevented through effective primary healthcare. And that's why I kind of mentioned all of these because I think it's, it's just so big. But then there are more than 400 million people in the world that live without access to such primary healthcare. So how have these facts you know, shaped your view on the role of healthcare in fostering more equitable future economies? Yeah, so I see health as, you know, I grew up in the US and I live now in Canada. So I've kind of seen both sides of this where health is this kind of foundational human right and it is more seen as a privilege for those who can afford it. So it's in my mind, very much so a, a piece of essential infrastructure that you know governments have the responsibility to provide to their people. And I think that that provides this bedwork on which you know you have flourishing economies, you have you know inequality that's addressed in meaningful ways. But in my mind, and, and this is part of the reason I chose to focus in the health space was I see it as this real foundation on which so many of the other kind of SDGs are achieved because without healthy people, it's hard to have progress. It's hard to have, you know, so many of those other things met. I mean, in particular with some of the metrics that you mentioned, you know, a lot of my work has been in primary healthcare. So doing that more preventative work and with, you know, the number of people that don't currently have access to healthcare, that number doesn't require that we build hospitals everywhere. That means that we have, you know, basic primary health services available, which is really focusing more on understanding how you prevent a lot of those issues um, than it is about solving the health issues once they come up. And there, there are amazing models all over the world. Some of my advisors have done in actually Colombia has shown that you can provide like world-class primary health care on an incredibly small budget because it is preventative. So it's actually incredibly cost-effective as well. And so, yeah, my hope is that economies realize that it's an investment 
and that there is a massive ROI. Um, there's a huge, huge opportunity uh, when you invest in the health of your people. I'm glad you're bringing this up, actually, because at the beginning of your answer, you mentioned the different perspectives of seeing as more as a privilege for, for the few versus a basic human right. And I guess there's also a difference between public and private health system. What, I, what we often notice is kind of this concept of prevention. So it's nice that you brought up this one example in Colombia, because being able to have this prevention at, an, you know, at a low cost means that you're just going to avoid so many higher costs later on, right? Exactly. And the problem is that with health in particular, the effects are long lasting because people will live, you know, long lives and they'll have a health condition that, you know, follows them through half of that. And that's the recurring cost that just doesn't go away. And so just a small amount of prevention, just having those basic kind of primary health um, systems in place and, and, and understanding how like our societies contribute to our health. I mean, the Canada has been a, a leader in the kind of uh, social determinants of health where, you know, we look at how how does society affect your health outside of just, you know, your own biology. So looking at things like inequality in societies where there's more inequality, even the wealthier are less healthy. It affects everyone across the spectrum of wealth. I think noticing those things and, and focusing on on solving those social determinants of health means you have like lifts everyone up and helps achieve not just, you know, SDG three focused on health, but so many of the others, because with health, it's kind of this, yeah, it, it takes, it's, it's affected by all of the other kind of SDGs and, and so many of these broader kind of inequalities. Focusing on the mental health aspect of things, actually. As a global health researcher, your work focuses on mobile health technology and social network analysis relating to the spread of behavior and information in a health context. To what extent can and should data and technology be leveraged to measure and achieve better mental health for all? A lot of my interest in this space started, I was doing research in Myanmar, and we were looking at how... In Myanmar, there was almost no health infrastructure. So they didn't have very many hospitals or any sort of broader health system in place. But what they did have was the highest adoption of smartphones of anywhere in the world. Because the price of a SIM card had just gone from $2,000 USD to $1.50. And so all of a sudden, everyone was getting phones and they weren't just like flip phones. They were smartphones, you know, these computers that people have in their pockets. And so we were really curious about, you know, even though they didn't have this health infrastructure, what could we do with the smartphone to bring the benefits of a, a more complex health system to people uh, through their smartphones? And our focus was originally on child malnutrition in that research. But what we realized is that there's a massive opportunity there um, because essentially what you have is, you know, data um, for each and every individual with a smartphone. And, you know, while typically that data is used for advertising and those sort of things, there's also the opportunity to use that data to actually help people in really meaningful ways. And one of those ways is, you know, as it, you know, my work right now in Animo comes is focusing on how do you help measure mental health? Um, because what you can measure, you can manage. And so I think the, the, and this is true, I think of not just, you know, digital health or uh, mental health, but all health is, you know, privacy and who has access to data, who owns that data, who controls the data is, you know, insanely important. I think the answer isn't too different from what we see with our typical healthcare systems, which is like, we need, you know, in, you know, we need to make sure that people have transparency into how their data is used, who has access to that data. and ultimately giving as much ownership to the individual over their data. And that's been the bedrock of what we're trying to do now, particularly with mental health, because it is so sensitive as information, because we're building a platform that lets you, through analysis of data from your smartphone, measure how you're feeling. And the idea is, you know, if you can do that, if you can actually turn that data into real value for a person, you know, we can prevent things like burnout we can identify early onset of depression and get people the right resources at the right time. But all of that starts with giving you control of your data. Thinking of, you know, future ideas and what's to come, my final question to you is, in light of what we discussed today, what are you hopeful for, for the future? I would say I'm, I'm incredibly hopeful 
for a couple things. One is I think healthcare overall. I think with, you know, there's nothing like a global pandemic to really force people to focus more on prevention. When you see just how the outcomes of what has happened with you know, COVID-19 is, is so determined by the amount of prevention um, that countries and, and people and cities put in. And I think that, you know, when you are focusing on prevention, not just for pandemics, but I think it leads into all elements of how we see health. And I think that that opens incredible opportunities to really, you know, have a larger conversation around mental health, you know, particularly with people having been in isolation for so long, right? Like our mental health is <laughs> dramatically affected. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm really hopeful for this is a sort of reset uh, and the opportunity to have these conversations on a much larger scale. Um, they've been happening for years that, you know, was it Alma Ata in 1978 was the kind of beginning of primary health care as we know it. And it's, you know, we have had social determinants of health uh, talked about for years. Like we, we know what to do. The information is there. The research is there. It's about, you know, do we have the willingness and the collective action to actually move forward with doing these things? And I think that we might actually have that. And, you know, the world's largest movement you know, with Black Lives Matter has happened, you know, only in the last year. And so I think that there is absolutely hope for that sort of collective action and, and focus on, on changing the systems in those positive ways. The recording of Dame Vivian Hunt's interview was done earlier this year. Dame Vivian Hunt is the senior partner for McKinsey & Company UK and Ireland and previously served as managing partner for the UK and Ireland for seven years. Previously named the most influential black woman in Britain, one of the top 25 consultants in the world and one of the 30 most influential people in the city of London, she advises corporate, public and third sector clients on topics of performance improvement, productivity growth and leadership. Vivian is also on the board of several significant business groups, charitable and education bodies, including the Confederation of British Industry, the Mayor of London's Business Advisory Board and Harvard Board of Overseers. Vivian is Chair of British American Business and Chair of Teach First. She is a trustee of the British Museum and sits on the governing board of the South Bank Centre and the US-UK Fulbright Commission. Dame Vivian Hunt, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Carlotta. It's a privilege to be with One Young World and to join you for your podcast series in 2020. Thank you so much for being here. My first question to you is kind of about the current situation we're finding ourselves in today. How are you understanding what's going on in the world right now? You know, at, at a personal level, Carlotta, it has been um, an enormously challenging year. I don't think most of us can even remember what we were doing a year ago today. Everything about our lives is transformed. And first and foremost, it is a public health and humanitarian crisis. You know, it is a situation where our lives are uh, challenged by the um, COVID-19 disease, learning how to manage it and learning how to gradually return to normal life, but with the right protections. We are, um, at the time of this conversation, still ahead of an effective uh, vaccine for the symptoms and underlying disease. And so we know for the next 18 to 24 months, we're gonna be in a period of transition. We're past the crisis moment um, in terms of the globalization of the illness, but we now are in this interim period where we've got to learn to live with and manage the disease. And so, the potential cost to lives and the public health crisis is the dominant variable. And even now, we're still at a moment where households and economies are opening and reopening in different ways. The other issue that the public health side has laid bare is that all things are not created equal. And we always talk about, particularly if you are interested in having great outcomes for business and society, a more socially just world and a more sustainable world at minimum in terms of the environment, but also sustainable operating practices in terms of how our societies and how people operate, how a company operates or how a uh, country operates. If you want that trifecta, if you believe you don't have to trade off great professional business choices, 
terrific outcomes in terms of social justice and a sustainability of planet and operating model, you really do have to pay attention to the more vulnerable populations in public health who don't have the same resources to be able to combat a challenge like COVID-19. And right now I'm just talking about the health and disease side because you can already see that certain populations, for example, um, older people are more vulnerable and disproportionately vulnerable and affected by COVID-19 disease and fatalities. You can see the care setting that you're in, which is of course related to where you live and how much money you have to access high quality care directly impacts your ability to access and manage um, the symptoms and outcomes of the disease. We know underlying health status, particularly for black and ethnic minority people, um, has an impact. The type of work you do, driving a bus, a frontline nurse, might expose you more than a worker who is able to work safely from home. So even before you get into the economy, Carlotta, and I know you're personally very interested in uh, responsible you know, wealth uh, development and more just income development, but even before you get into how you generate income for a household and your job, the health impact is already so asymmetrical and exposing many, many inequalities just in how this disease moves through our population. The second insight, of course, is about livelihoods. Um, and it's not a trade-off between lives and livelihoods, but it's exactly that conundrum of how do we reopen the economy. We've had the largest simultaneous economic shock to the global economy in our lifetimes. And it is, um, you know, five or six X the quantum that you might have expected, for example, from Exit EU or the 2008 uh, financial services crisis. It's much broader, it's much deeper, it's front-loaded, and it's a simultaneous shock of demand and supply. Some businesses will build back quickly, some businesses will build back really slowly. So we understand it as lives and livelihoods. And you mentioned social justice. Um, I, I think of that, that is our liberties, you know, our capabilities and our liberties and how we interact. And, and that's also been a really important aspect of this, this moment. So a crisis, yes, public health and our lives, a real challenge of how do you navigate and reopen the economy, particularly for vulnerable populations, and also do it with social justice in mind. Do it with an eye to how civil liberties could potentially be better after this crisis than when they were when we went into it. Thank you very much, Ian Vivian. How can I even put it into words? Holistic but encompassing summary of kind of what's going on in the world right now. And I just want to focus on that aspect of the disproportion. You also mentioned, you know, the potential cost on lives as a dominant variable and the fact that not all things are created equal and also maybe this difference between equity and equality. And COVID-19 disproportionately, as you mentioned, impacting the lives and livelihoods of the most vulnerable communities. So how can we actually build back better and recover our economies with these vulnerable communities at the heart of decision making? Well, the first thing I would say is we need to look at the data because a vulnerable community in the U.S. context is very characterized by a disproportionate impact on women, disproportionate impact of, of on Black and ethnic minorities of all types, disproportionate impact on um, people who are in fragile work and frontline employees. In the UK, women are disproportionately impacted as our ethnic minorities, but it's primarily because of the nature of the jobs that they do. You know, some work is very gendered. So healthcare, for example, is a growth field. 70% of healthcare jobs in the UK are occupied by women. It's got a higher proportion of women in management. You would think that's great. But then when it comes to a global pandemic that is particularly most concentrated and most dangerous, you know, in skilled ICUs, you see many, many women right on the front line of disease. Similarly, at home, with lockdown and schools being closed, women carry a disproportionate domestic responsibility. And I think that differential before this crisis was two to three times. Women spend two to three times on domestic responsibilities. That's gone up to five or six times during the COVID crisis. Now, the good thing is the pressures happen to everyone, men, women, everyone are feeling the same pinch. But if you don't have the resources and capability, income, support services to redress what's happening to you because of your structural vulnerability, 
then you need help. And the government has leaned in in a, a phenomenal and needed way to underwrite and support the entire economy. It's been a very material intervention by government and also the financial services industry being responsible and helping at household level and also particularly with supply chains. Similarly, businesses can look at the data and say, which vulnerable, which populations in my employees are vulnerable? Which populations in my communities are vulnerable? I'll give you an example. We now have, a, with permission, a tracker of the circumstances in which our employees are working, who might be a single parent, who might have a vulnerable adult living in their household, who might be in a multi-person flat share and be able, in a very inefficient in how they're working, who might have an intergenerational household and have concerns about uh, their disease. My younger uh, son is always concerned about his Nana because when he thinks about COVID, he worries for his grandmother. So an employer at any organization, but as employers, particularly for job creation, can absolutely look at their own data, intersect it with the COVID impacts, and decide, I am going to pay more attention to building back the vulnerable jobs first. I'm going to be sure that we retrain those people if the jobs aren't going to come back. I'm going to join talent exchanges and marketplaces. I'm going to focus and invest for upskilling. Amazon has a wonderful program in some of its distribution centers where in the last few months, you stop working distribution, you continue to work within their the warehouse, but you are retrained for a higher skill job because they've had a bolus of need, but they may need to retrain and move those people around. So you say, what can businesses do relative to vulnerable populations? A lot. Preserving income, disproportionately supporting vulnerable populations, and also recognizing that we won't come out of this structural shock and recession better off for underrepresented populations. In 2001, 2008, and previously, it's very clear that underrepresented groups and fragile groups came out of the recession worse than they went in. But this time is different because it's affecting every household. It's affecting every industry. And the demand think about the tourism industry or airlines, is coming back very slowly. So if demand is only going to come back over 12 to 24 months, you have to find really creative ways to be able to retain, redistribute, manage, for example, employment, and do that in an ethical and sensitive way. So the good news is for, for business, and, I, and you know, McKinsey and in my work, we do it with a lot of private sector people and CEOs, is it's never been uh, easier for a CEO to bring in purpose, to bring in attention to vulnerable populations, and to be asymmetric in how we solve this. It's okay to say, I'm gonna pay attention to the lowest paid workers who are most vulnerable in my employee base and make sure we fix it for them until we can get to the other side of this. That is a radical change. You know, Carlotta, a year ago today, we were not discussing that. It's a huge sea change. So I think businesses should be challenged but I think they can do a lot. So you can almost say there's no excuse, right? In the current situation. Well, that's you talking like a one young world delegate and counselor. That's exactly right. You know, that, that's why I say businesses can be challenged. And when you look at your own data, there has to be um, for vulnerable populations something that every employer can do. It may be in the products and services you provide. It may be through job creation. It may be through how you preserve furlough and restructure vulnerable jobs. It's not about whether your business is growing or not. Everyone's trying to recover from the shock and you can pay attention to that. Importantly for young people, they are disproportionately affected by the job impact. We know that many of the most vulnerable jobs are in frontline occupations, jobs that pay less than 10 pounds an hour, and 80% of those jobs are held by people who are low income. Now, all of us are low income in some ways because of the life stage we're in. And most people, when they're young, Carlotta, are low earning at the start of their career. Some people are long-term in low income work and fragile work, but all young people are, are in fragile work because they're young, they're starting out on their skill base, et cetera. And the um, job security, uh, issues for young people and for black and ethnic minority issues are also particularly vulnerable. So how do you get young people into work and retain them should be another lens that businesses use as they think about building back better. And building on the different elements that you've just touched upon now, how would you think then about leadership in this current moment? And for yourself, what have you learned about being a 21st century leader in the business during this crisis? Well, 
Personally, it has been um, an opportunity to really bring more of yourself and your full humanity to work. I know that sounds a little ethereal, Carlotta, but you know, when you are advising clients, we already deal with big issues of their business operations, balance sheet, cash flow, the economic side of things. And they might choose or be pressured to focus on one additional stakeholder or another. So we talked about the environment a little bit earlier and the attention and need to build in ESG goals was there, of course, pre-COVID. But if you look at how we've been able to dramatically improve developed world ecological and environmental footprint during lockdown, it shows you how much more could be done and how quickly it could be done if it were forced. So the pressure point is, yes, the economy had to shut down, but the reveal is that we can actually make radically bigger changes in using technology platforms to um, address and manage uh, climate change and reduction. We've restructured how we are doing so many things in our office and our commute and flexibility, and our carbon footprint is going to be, as well as other metrics, are going to be structurally lower as an office, just as an example. Um, similarly, the technology adoption. You know, we've been talking about technology adoption and, and moving that forward. I work with a charity called Teach First, and we learned when schools closed immediately which students didn't have an acceptable device for even printing their lessons never mind a device at home, over 20% of our students found they did not have a device beyond their smartphone um, that they could learn on. And um, those who didn't have broadband access versus those who didn't have the hardware and software versus those who had all those, those things but were competing for access to it. So young people who had to give their laptop to their parent so they could stay and work. So the digital divide was laid bare in a day, in a day. Um, and so, it shows you exactly where we need to close the access gaps, the importance of the hardware and software, the importance of skills training. You know, if you look at the differential impact for furloughs and layoffs, it's much lower in a place like Estonia that has a very high level of digital skills. Not a high level of tech kit, but digital skills in the economy is much, and the, and the impact for them has on uh, layoffs, structural layoffs, has been much lower than other similar economies. So my point is, we learned at great pace and without any apology, how quickly we could move on some of these things when we were forced to because we had public health concerns. And if we could take that same pace and energy and intensity and keep some of those improvements around the environmental footprint and operations, keep some of the improvements around technology adoption, new ways of working, secure, ethical digital platforms, a new level of engagement and dialogue and awareness around justice and equality and bias in the workplace and in society. I mean, I want those things to stay after we're past the COVID crisis. And so for me personally, the pace and intensity of how much we could change if we change some of our assumptions is very stark. And uh, the harder hit businesses have been, the more uh, insight I think they've learned about how much they could change. As a leader, I think you need a bit of courage right now, Carlotta. I, I think we're at a time where you have to be able to lead in a very human way. I have, when the incidents with um, uh, police, uh, ineffective policing methods and, and racism and bias, not just towards black American men, but to people around the world, really went global, I think of as the globalizing of the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, I had conversations with colleagues at work that I've never had in my life. You know, them reassuring me of their seriousness, the pain that they had as they thought about their own privilege or perhaps lack of understanding. You know, we're close colleagues, but not truly friends. How can we have not had a conversation about this? Um, colleagues who talked about not having had a conversation about cultural differences and race with their children. You know, it really profound personal stuff, real talk, as my teenage boys would say. And we need to keep that in business dialogue, not so that we feel angsty and guilty, but so that we can stay grounded and really solve the problems that technology, the environment, inequality, um, and many of the other issues that will be here once COVID is resolved. And the level of candor and forthrightness that very senior colleagues have brought to the issue of public health, economic uh, survival and restructuring and recovery, and of course, 
social justice and civil liberties, you know, I hope that quality of dialogue stays. Thank you for sharing that. This is really grounding, actually, just listening to you highlighting these elements. And I think that in all these different situations, it's really interesting to see how leaders react and then, you know, how to they work with these, with what is happening in the world. And it's, it's challenging. It's challenging, Carlotta, because you've got to be a human, a person, and you're the person who you authentically are. And like all people, we wear a little bit of a mask. We have a skill set and professional decorum and standards for how we interact. You're also a leader. So you have to set an example and be a role model for others. And we're in the most profound crisis of our professional and, and for some people, personal lives as well. So there's no room for, um, for less than authentic leadership, but it's authentic to you. It doesn't have to look like how you lead or how I lead. It has to be authentic to you. And I think that authenticity is giving leaders a lot of courage and a lot of voice. And so that's encouraging. But you also have to lead your organization. And it's not guesswork what building back better requires. Looking at your skills gap, understanding the impact of technology, measuring that, and monitoring and managing a more hybrid way of working. More complex, yes, but also potentially more efficient and productive, and maybe in some sectors, even a little more creative. Looking at analytics to help with your decision-making, many things that we let leave to judgment, like how to build an inclusive operating environment, or can we ever really understand our environmental footprint? Yes, you can. Analytics and best practice exist. You can use your data to improve. Some companies really excel, and you can learn those lessons. Global supply chains whether it's in a geopolitical sense or it's just an operational sense, we've privileged global physical supply chains and also virtual supply chains. And that has been terrific for economic development and interconnectivity. But if you add geopolitical pressure or those supply chains are just simply broken, planes aren't flying, no cargo is moving, no people are moving, then you have to think of new ways to have different resilience. So it's not the most efficient, it might be the most agile supply chain, um, and of course, we've talked about climate change, which now more than ever can be uh, measured and managed both on an investment as well as an operational basis. So I just use those as concrete examples, Carlotta, of not only just leading in a new way as humans, finding new voice, a new level of engagement and authenticity, which I think is really needed and required for leaders today, but also use the tools and data that are available to you to make better decisions. You know, in these large through cycle areas, technology and skills, the impact of digital and analytics, supply chain connectivity and agility, inclusion and diversity as a capability for your company, not a nice to have or social justice issue. And of course, the environment and climate change, which the biggest investors in the world have already served notice that they want to see real progress. So I'm a big believer in social justice. Everything I've, I do in my life, um, Carlotta, is towards service and towards having better integrated outcomes. Um, and I'm not privileging the private sector with that because the largest employer, for example, in the UK is the public sector. Um, most people are not high earning. They have middle and lower incomes. So you have to think, how does our total community succeed? We all are inspired differently. You know, what I am very interested in, in the creative and visual arts outside of work and have children who are super interested in sports and athletics in addition to their academics. And so you, you've got to bring those good principles to every sphere of the economy. But businesses who provide the anchor income and anchor opportunity for wealth creation potential, no matter what your income level, have a higher responsibility at this time particularly when the world is polarized and we're still, you know, working in this um, uh, hybrid, uh, part virtual, part in-person way. I'm really glad we are touching upon this, actually, because the concept of leadership is a very hard role. And well, I can think about it from the perspective, you know, of uh, a One Young World ambassador and kind of, you know, we are trying to prepare the next generation of leadership. But, you know, it, it's tough also because leaders are often under scrutiny and it's always easy to say, well, you know, this is how they should be doing it. But when you're not actually in that role and you've got, you know, the human aspect, but also the, you know, the business aspect and all the other aspects that you mentioned, it's not that easy. So, so thank you for bringing that That's up. That's real. You know, for leaders, it's real to have to manage their 
strengths and weaknesses and skills, their lived experience, you know, and that's going to be intersectional and multidimensional for every one of us. None of us are a stereotype and monodimensional. Uh, I mean, you've got such a rich professional history, a diverse cultural background, and a real passion around sustainability and social justice. And the fusion of those things in you cuts across any one of those capabilities. And None, no single one of them makes you more qualified for your job, but without any of them, you wouldn't be able to make the unique contribution. And the great thing I love about One Young World Ambassadors as well, Carlotta, is you all are very impatient. You're holding yourself to a high standard. You're not just saying we're going to get together and sorry, our conference is canceled, but how can we bring real content debate powered by young people and the next generation online? And that gives every, everyone a real inspiration but also challenge to improve. So leaders have to expect to be challenged. They have to expect backlash as you're making these changes because people are changing. It may be confusing. They may not understand what the economic opportunities are in an insecure household and environment. They may be concerned about their health and how that's being managed and the risks to themselves or their family. They may not understand that justice and equality means an inclusive environment for everyone so that you're better able to tell your story and I'm able to tell my story. I'm not privileging your experience over mine, but that we do live in an institutional structure that does privilege some people's experience over others. And that bias in the system means that if you're neutral, you're not actually neutral. If you're neutral as a person, you're not actually neutral in your organization and society because we all exist in a world that, that is replete with bias. You might have the bias of being from an underrepresented group in business, like a woman in business, or a historically marginalized and excluded group like Afro-Caribbean or, or, or Black in my case. On the other hand, I went to an elite school and had an excellent education. And with that comes some privileges and responsibilities. So each of us is very complex and you, leaders can't have to be pretty resilient and expect some backlash, expect to have to repeat things, expect to have to evidence why we need to change because leading people through these types of changes just requires a bit of courage. We are almost at the end of our episode, but my final question to you is, what gives you hope for the future? I hope we remain impatient for progress. We've seen how quickly we can move on issues of public health, on issues of economic recovery on issues of social justice. And I hope we keep up the pace. We've learned that it is no longer needed for us to remain neutral, but that we can have a positive desire for impact of technology, the environment, social justice, and that it's not inconsistent with positive outcomes in business. That's been really demonstrated in a lot of our data and research in McKinsey. But when you see business leaders, the CBI, Business Roundtable, taking that into action. And so I hope we keep that sense of impatience and energy and pressure so that we really do become the change that we want to see in the world. I am thrilled to be joined by One Young World Ambassador, Monica Moisin. Monica Moisin is a cultural, intellectual property and fashion lawyer, author of the TEDx talk, Cultural Fashion Transform, the fashion industry from villain to hero, and founder of the Cultural Intellectual Property Rights Initiative, a global network enabling cultural sustainability. With a double specialization in EU law and international arbitration, Monica advises her clients on various legal matters related to the fashion business and creative industry and assists clients in alternative dispute resolution procedures. Affiliated with the Swedish School of Textiles in Sweden, Monica currently specializes in textile value chain management and sustainability strategy development. Monica, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Carlotta, for inviting me. It's so good to, to be back in contact with the One Young World Network. From a high-level perspective, do you believe that global economic growth and inequality alleviation are compatible under a current economic system, capitalism? <laughs> That's a tough question, isn't it? I guess there's a lot of specialists, researchers, and, and bankers around the world that are trying to find the answer to this question. I do not have an expertise in banking or finance at all. My father has, but, <laughs> but not me. Yeah. What I believe, though, is from traveling around the world and working 
grassroots with uh, people from different economic backgrounds. I believe that only community ownership can be the key for sustainable future development, for the future economies, if you want. Community ownership is essential. Empowering communities to be self-sustainable, as opposed to having limited number of people monopolizing wealth, ultimately. You, as your profession, you are a fashion lawyer and you're the founder of the Cultural Intellectual Property Rights Initiative. So you spent you know, extensive time working on addressing and protecting the rights of creators and craftspeople. So how has this shaped your vision on the craft economy and its role in the global ecosystem? Working in this environment, I identified two underlying problems. First, there's an unequal distribution of resources globally. And often the people who are most affected by this unequal distribution of resources are those who are still working with their hands, the makers. They are at the bottom of the pyramid. They do not have a system to fall back on, insurance, medical, healthcare. It's an unorganized economy. And second, you have unequal valuation of knowledge. The knowledge of these people, the craft knowledge, the the knowledge that is inherited from generations to generations in many parts of the world is not valued to the same extent as we value contemporary IP, let's say, associated with copyright, trademarks, patents, and all these conventional IP tools that have been developed after the 1700s. What I've noticed as well is that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in the EU or you know, the West in general, many big brands actually use crafts, designs, and maybe they reproduce them, not in that, maybe as a professional way as it, it would be done, you know, if it was an actual artisan, but kind of the prints or the patterns kind of recreate that. And so that's a shame almost because we don't actually even know that we're wearing something that really represents uh, specific cultures, you know, craftsmanship. This is a very, this is a phenomenon that doesn't only happen in Europe, but maybe in Europe we are becoming a bit more aware on the cultural appropriation phenomenon. Every type of act that is somehow diluting the original meaning and the original value. Uh, When you digitally print a design as compared to, for example, block printing it with um, wood blocks um, in India or in Indonesia, the final, the end consumer might not even be spotting the difference. This doesn't only happen in these comparisons. This also happens, for example, in India, there are um, uh, are many, many copies, let's say, of authentic garments, authentic traditional expressions, like the Banarsi Sari that is one of the most, let's say, infringed, if you want, or or counterfeited goods, because even amongst the craftspeople, uh, consider it too laborious and too expensive to create, and sometimes you would be finding polyester version, so not not the same raw materials. And there's a lot of intransparency in general um, across the textile and fashion supply chains worldwide. So this is where... um, we need a bit more more traceability and a bit more uh, visibility. And looking at the current state of global economies, what are the key elements and concepts in your view that will be pivotal in rendering future economies more equitable and just? I love these two concepts, justice and equity. Justice we can't always make, but equity we can strive toward. So we can increase opportunities for, for those who don't have access to them. We can change this paradigm of Uh, superiority towards parts of the world by offering this equitable, this uh, equality partnership where knowledge is valued equally, irrespective of where it comes from. And for that, what we at the Cultural IP Rights Initiative work with, and I believe a lot in, are benefit-sharing business models where these communities become stakeholders and shareholders themselves. Equity embedded in the business model itself, in the way we develop this business with the well-being of the people in mind. Ideally, we would have these global solidarity clauses and have solidarity clauses in contracts that are binding different stakeholders across the supply chain. Because when you know that if something bad happens to you, the other has to suffer, or if something good happens to you, it will benefit the other. It does create another type of dynamic and another type of environment, even in business. I was just talking the other day with a good colleague of mine from back in high school, who is a business 
business person here in Romania. And we were discussing about the nature of personal relationships in, in business and how I believe that um, we are losing a lot of this personal touch. And he was saying, but this is so, it's such a fake construct to believe that it's all about the money because in fact, it's all about the personal relationships. It doesn't matter how big the business in a way or another, there are personal relationships there on which those business relationships have been built. And we need to start thinking back. We need to start thinking back to the importance of these personal relationships and knowing your partner. I believe, especially for craft-based, when we have people who are really people working on the ground, uh, not machines. Yeah, You need to know your partner. You need to know the community and what are the needs of this community and how can you, as a bigger business, support local development, regional development. And I guess there's a big trust element in that as well, right? You, you need to uh, work with them and you also need to be able to trust them and, and know what they need. So based on what we just discussed, I've got a final question for you. So, you know, in light of what you just said and the answers that you gave, what are you hopeful for for the future? I do believe in the idea of craftsmanship for a green future. This is a campaign that we started this year when we celebrated two years from the launch of the Cultural Intellectual Property Rights Initiative. And it's an idea in which all the members of this network and the the members of uh, initiative and us who work day uh, after day for this project believe in that uh, when you think of craftsmanship and of the relationship between people and what they make and the people and their environments, this symbiosis with nature, it's a different relationship. We believe that when we get closer to nature and closest to understanding the value of the raw materials and how you transform, you know, a a tree into a table and how you... And how that material evolves and lives with you and and, um, gets old with you. And when we have this more personal connection uh, with everything, with all the goods and the people and the world around us, this is something that gives me hope. I am thrilled to be joined by One Young World Ambassador, Achaleke Christian Leke today. Achaleke is a national coordinator of Local Youth Corner Cameroon, a youth-led peace-building civil society organization. He has acquired 13 years of experience in conflict, peace-building and preventing violent extremism. His work as a peace-builder is inspired by his childhood of growing in conflict and lived violence. Some of Achaleke's work includes helping facilitate the rehabilitation and reintegration of 5,000 young, violent and extremist offenders across eight different prisons. He recently championed the creation of the first National Youth Mediators Network in Cameroon. Achaleke also serves as the Pan-Commonwealth Coordinator of the Commonwealth Youth Peace Ambassadors Network. He has several awards from the Luxembourg Peace Prize for his work as an outstanding peacemaker to Commonwealth Youth Award of Excellence in Development Work. Achaleke, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you very much for this uh, unique opportunity. I must say it's a huge pleasure to join uh, you to reflect on this topic. My first question to you is, from a high-level perspective, do you believe that global economic growth and inequality alleviation are compatible under our current economic system, capitalism? Uh, Well, um, I, I, I think that Economic growth and inequality, I mean, these are uh, uh, the, the nexus between these two uh, conversations. Uh, uh, it's very real. And there's a thin line between these two uh, because um, from a country like Cameroon, where I'm from, where we see um, uh, uh, economic deprivation, where we see ourselves in poverty, and uh, we realize that issues around uh, inequalities, marginalization, and, and you know, many more, are actually a contributing factor uh, to to this. You know, capitalism comes with an opportunity, you know, for individuals to to be able to to own and you know manage resources and all of that. But in our context, most often, you realize that in the place of capitalism, yes, which gives people the zeal or the opportunity to have. But, you know, because of inequalities, it makes it very difficult for people to actually, uh, you know, uh, 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 become, you know, uh, 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 decision makers on their own economic and social uh, 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 fate. So it, it comes back to 
uh, you know, what our governments are doing, why they are adopting uh, uh, economic policies, what are they doing to ensure that they bridge the gaps of inequality, uh, the issues of marginalization, the issues of, of you know, of uh, making, uh, be it women or minority groups or despite your sexual orientation or whatsoever, to feel less important, to be involved in economic conversation and to be able to, 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 to lead in your own space. I, I take, for example, uh, inequalities, especially uh, when it comes to young people, has really, really affected you know, the ability for young people in the African continent, for example, to be able to thrive in the economic space. You know, there's a shrinking space for, you know, young people thinking that the older generation are much more fit, you know, to be able to run businesses or to do things on their own. I mean, it's affecting that opportunity and that possibility for an economy to thrive. And looking at our economies where our social or our, you know, the demographic uh, landscape of most of our countries is made up of young people, you know, 70%, 75%, you know, not providing young people the opportunity to effectively involve in, you know, building the economy makes it, you know, uh, 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 a disadvantage to our context. And I, am, I can certainly, you know, conclude that these inequalities, which is very prevalent in our context is really challenging the ability of our countries to thrive economically. So, I mean, these are the realities that we see and it is seen in our work because most of the conflict situations that we have today in our countries is as a result of, you know, inequalities and all of that. You know, if we are talking about poverty to be a driver for conflict, for radicalization, it is also because, you know, people are not given the opportunity to earn or to, you know, to start up their own businesses or to even thrive in very difficult moments like this. So, and this is the, the reality that we are facing because many of the underdeveloped countries, if you look at the, 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 the Commonwealth Youth Development Index, you would see that most of the impoverished countries have high level of violence and, you know, war. So there's a big connection. And if you look at the reasons for these wars and inequality and, and, uh, and conflicts, it's as a result of inequalities. So there's a big connection uh, between these. So a community or a country where inequalities are managed properly and people are given the opportunities to, to engage at different levels, of course, they will definitely thrive and will be very successful. You briefly touched upon kind of, you know, opportunities for young people and how they can become champions for change. And we'll touch upon that later on. But... Um, Remaining on the topic of sort of the economic deprivation in Cameroon, um, you were born in Fiangokumba in Cameroon, a town that is unfortunately renowned for its violent and extremist tendencies amongst its youth with practices such as kidnapping, gang violence and armed robbery. You were a victim and a witness of such radicalization and violence, but you were able to transform these experiences into becoming an ambassador for peace building and fights against violent extremism. How have these experiences shaped your views on the role of peace building today? Well, I think my personal experiences uh, really taught me a lot, especially in the process of, you know, of leaving this violence on her and moving from violence to being a peace builder. You know, one of the things I learned was that, you know, young people who sometimes are always seen as troublemakers, you know, engage in this violence and crime, not really because of fault of their own, but also because our societies, our communities do not do an effort to give value to the role of young people, do not see them as key people to contribute within the context. It starts from home, you know. Most of my peers today will find themselves in jail, who have committed crimes or who have lost their lives. You know, it came back from the way in which they were brought up in their homes. And I learned these lessons that, you know, peace has to, has to start from yourself as an individual because I had to love myself first. When I see how people were being killed, shot, stopped, I told myself my life was more valuable than to put it on a platter of, you know, who knows tomorrow, you know, for it just to be played upon. And the first lesson I learned was that, you know, you have to be the change for yourself. And also that your families, communities, and your country owe you a task to ensure that it prevents you from environment in violence. Now, moving from this to working for peace, I came to learn that we can really build peace when we have self-love and love for our communities and our nation which is all about patriotism and all of that. But, you know, patriotism, it's, 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 it's seen to be a rocket science kind of thing, but it's very simple. It starts from love for yourself, 
for your community, for your parents, your families, and your friends. Because if you have love for one another, you will not have the courage to stab someone or to carry a gun, you know, to shoot someone. And growing in this, I, I learned the compassion of solving problems rather than complaining. Because we realize that in our context, there's a high level of blame game. You know, apportioning the blame on A, B, the government, civil society, international organizations. But what have we done to solve these problems? So I learned to be a problem solver. And it really changed my life because I could see value. And, you know, I could see a lot of gain from solving problems. Not financial gain, but peace of mind. But seeing how put, putting smiles on people's face can change a whole generation. See how, you know, working with an inmate, a prisoner who was condemned for life, and giving him an alternative and bring him joy to an extent where he's released. And today he is an entrepreneur. I mean, these are the core values that I learned, which is very important in peace. I learned about forgiveness. I learned about accepting people's differences. I learned about, you know, working together. I learned about collaboration. These are key values, and this helped a lot to build my resilience. But, you know, all of these key values could really matter when you put them into use. And with my organization, Local Youth Corner, where I started as a volunteer, I have been able to put these values into use, you know, train other young people to work with me as a team to be able to solve major problems in our context. And these... It is based on this that I had the opportunity to serve at the international level, influencing policy, influencing global conversation based on evidence of the success of our work. Because I believe a lot in evidence-based advocacy, and which is what we've been able to do. And I'm so delighted that, you know, in this advocacy, till date, we've been able to have three UN Security Council resolutions focusing on the role of young people in peace building. This means that our little efforts we do locally, you know, from all sorts of kind of experiences can be able to influence national and even global policies. I mean, this has been my, 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 my life so far, and it is something which I do with a lot of passion, engaging young people. And for over 14 years today, I've seen myself, you know, working with over 1 million young people, engaging in projects of all sorts. But this is thanks to the fact that I had to love myself first and to see crime not as the way to go. And to be able to join in shaping the narrative that young people are more of peace builders and agents of change rather than troublemakers. I mean, this has been uh, my perspective so far. Thank you so much for sharing that and also for providing details of your journey, your experiences and what you have learned. And since 2014, Cameroon witnessed consistent civil unrests triggered primarily by the Boko Haram insurgency in the northern parts of the country and more recently by the armed separatists movements. So these pose a huge challenge to Cameroon's peace and security, as well as to the vision of becoming an emerging country by 2035. So in your view, how does poverty contribute towards radicalization and how does violence affect individuals' access to opportunities? Well, I, you know, I want to draw from my context. You know, when I was growing up, um, you know, I lived the sad experience of seeing how, you know, young people, you know, became radical. And poverty was one of these issues because, you know, poverty goes beyond just uh, the inability to maybe have money or to have something to eat or something of that sort. But it has a whole identity dimension. When I was working on Boko Haram cases in Cameroon and in, in, in the, the northeast of Nigeria, I realized that, you know, young people who suffered from poverty as a driver for them to involve in conflict got into violence because of the fact that because they were poor, it questioned the identity. In our context, if you are in a home and you cannot provide for your family, you are seen as a nobody. You are treated as a liability. And making the person who is poor not to even value himself and to turn to crime or violence as a way, you know, to generate income to meet up. Now, if you see the nexus between poverty and crime and violence, you know, it is, it is so intertwined because when you start doubting your ability to be positive in your environment because you don't have money, you start seeking for different opportunities to acquire wealth, to acquire money because you want to be relevant. 
And that is why if you look at Boko Haram, Boko Haram focuses on providing cash rewards to young people whom they recruit. And this is not so much money. It's $100, it's $20, it's $40. Very little sum of money, but you know, they can be able to commit you know, very huge crime because of very small money, because they feel it gives them a sense of ownership of their life and they have some resources. And this has been what we have seen. Growing up as a child, it was one of the push factors why my peers picked up machete and guns and, you know, became armed robbers and, you know, engaged in kidnapping because they really wanted to, you know, gain respect, you know, you know, the peer pressure component to show your friends, you know, and sometimes even for young men, the masculinity concept, you know, as a young man, you have to be the one to provide for your wife or your family or your parents. And that's why we have many more young people involved in, in violence. And that's what we've seen today. In the Anglophone region, yes, we are talking about marginalization, but it is about the issue of the uh, uh, inequality in sharing the resources which is generated from maybe the oil refinery that we have in the region and from different agricultural and development projects that we have within the region. It comes all from these, you know, real poverty-related challenges. But it is great that we note that poverty is not only is not the only factor. There are other factors which pushes that leads com- uh, combined to push people to violence. Okay. So how does violence affect individuals' access to opportunities? Well, um, you know, violence is seen um, very negatively because it hurts people, which is the truth. And my experience of working within prisons for the past four years has showed me on hand of what it means to commit violence for you to be incarcerated and the impact it has on your personality. Now, when you are seen as violence, it affects your credibility, which credibility is very important when it comes to access to jobs. And it reduces your chances for employability because of the fact that, you know, employers will see you as an ex-convict. For you to, you know, access some jobs in the country, they'll say you have to provide a non-conviction letter to show you've never been convicted before. Now, it's a big problem, but my experience working in prison, I learned and I saw that these persons who have committed these crimes, this violence, could be better persons if we give them an opportunity. And that comes to the project which I've been running in prison, which is called the Creative Skills of Peace Project, where we have been trying to change the narrative of how prisoners see themselves, of how communities see prisoners, preparing them for rehabilitation and reintegration back into their communities through providing them the opportunity to develop new skills which they can use to create jobs and, you know, and, you know, income. And this has been very successful because we have been able to build what we call prisonpreneurs, entrepreneurs from prison, where we've given them skills, we've branded them, we've given them financial opportunity to be able to generate income for themselves. And today, the results of these are so impeccable because of the fact that, you know, the ability for a violent offender to be skillful increases the chances of this violent offender to even acquire a job. Because sometimes in the job market, an employer might look beyond your criminal record and would want to focus on your skills. Now, we have trained people who have skills, which gives them an added value, which an employer could admire. And that's why today, as an institution, we've been able to employ some violent offenders. We have been able to train and are reintegrating some of them. You know, the story of Michael is an example. Michael was a young, is a young person who was incarcerated for 135 years in jail. We met him 135 years in jail, which, which was equivalent to life imprisonment. And um, three years ago, we met him in prison and he was a beneficiary for our program. And our training takes into consideration different aspects around personality development, around self-healing, around trauma healing. And we worked with him, provided him skills. He became, you know, the the class prefect of their training uh, uh, workshop in prison. And gradually he picked up and became so, so skillful to an extent where we used all of these and applied, and he was actually granted his freedom, you know, thanks to his transformation. Today, as we speak, you know, he is the, he currently runs his own workshop out of prison. He's an entrepreneur now. He earns his own income now, and he actually 
is providing training to other young people. And he is looking at setting up his vocational training center where he will be receiving prisoners upon exit from prison, train them, and work with them for the reinsertion into the community. He has three apprentices now, and he is currently producing face masks and donating to prisons for free. I mean, this is an example of what skills can do when it comes to you know, providing a more uh, 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 credibility for a violent offender to have access to jobs. We are almost at the end of our episode, but my final question to you is, what gives you hope for the future? My hope is a generation where we'll have many more young professionals, many more young people who are ready to respond to the challenges that we have in our continent and in the world. I hope you enjoyed this week's Global Challenges podcast. Before we come to an end, I would like to thank our guests, Quinn Underwood, Dame Vivian Hunt, Monica Moisin, and Achaleke Christian Leke. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us and to record this episode. And also to you, our listeners, thank you so much as well.